2: and enjoy the show it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark
3: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about cantankerous couples and evil experiments. I'm Otis Jiry, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark now in its eighth season. My show is available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found. So if you enjoy all things spooky, come on over to my neck of the woods and check us out too. You won't be sorry you did. Tonight, I will be filling in as host on behalf of my very good friend, Steve Taylor. I hope you're getting better soon, Steve. In the meantime... I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Mark Toves and Kyle Harrison to life are voice talents Nick Goroff and Danielle Hewitt. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds Embrace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Mark Toes and is performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights 2016 Evil Idol voice acting competition champion Nick Goroff. In it, we'll meet a man taking part in an experiment of the mind and we'll hear what happens when test subjects such as this one experience something beyond all research and imagination. Without further ado, I present to you, Case Study.
4: Tarmac turns to dirt, and the van bounces across uneven ground, causing my pen to roll off the passenger seat, and the hanging cross to swing violently from side to side. There he is, walking straight towards me, about a hundred yards ahead, swaying his school bag back and forth and gazing at the sky. My adrenaline is in full flow now. Nerve endings prickling, not a drop of saliva in my mouth. Shit. Am I really going to go through with this? Will he run? No. He's probably seen workers here before. Perhaps they've even shouted warnings that the place isn't supposed to be used by pedestrians. Get a grip. Likely hearing the engine, the boy glances towards the van. Part of me wants him to turn around and race back to the safety of smooth tarmac. But I've spent weeks on this, observing the builder's comings and goings, planning which roads to take, following the kid home, always alone, always the same road, as if it was meant to be. It's just a child, Samuel, my mother's voice rings in my head. I need this, Mum. I pinch the cross between my fingers to stop its movement. The chain it hangs from is cheap and tarnished, but it still means the world to me. "'He'll look after you when I'm not around,' my mum said from her deathbed as she weakly folded my fingers around it. I catch sight of my reflection in the rearview mirror, and it sickens me. The kid's eyes begin searching the sky again, probably wondering what snack to grab when he gets in, which video game to play. Christ! what it must be like to live without anxiety. I roll the car to a halt and slide the mask on, taking another look at the boy, still in a dream world, mouthing something to himself. Perhaps he's singing. That's it kid, it will all be over soon. I slide the door open and scurry to the back of the van, sneaking another glance. Even though I've checked it over a dozen times, I can't help but do a quick inventory. It's all there, in place. A wave of dizziness washes over me, and I reach an arm toward the van. I wait for it to pass and grab the small brown sack and needle from the toolbox. Come on, Sam. You can't quit now. I try and steady my breathing, but end up making it worse. It feels as though my legs are sinking into the ground. Fuck! (laughs) Inhale. Exhale. Inhale gravel begins to crunch only a few yards ahead. Shit, shit, shit. He's mumbling something quick, incomprehensible. I run my finger under my collar. It's impossibly hot all of a sudden. Three. What am I doing? Two. I must be out of my mind. One. I step out in front of him. He stops, expressionless. Eyes on the piece of canvas in my right hand guilt instantly washes over me, but I remind myself that I need this, that I need his fear. It's a tense standoff, full of doubt and confusion. What happened to fight or flight? Is this shock, fear? Does he not know what is going to happen? I make my move, and finally he takes a step back, mouth hanging open. My hands clasp around his left arm and I almost apologize for my roughness noting the long scar that runs down his pale flesh. Get with it, Sam. Urgently, I slip the bag over his head and slide my right hand across his mouth, prompting his body to spring into action, kicking up dust and thrashing his arms around wildly. His muffled pleas vibrate through my hand as I drag him back to the rear of the van. I give a quick and hard shove that sends him sprawling across the van floor, taking the opportunity. I sink the needle into his thigh and step back to study the kid's squirming motion. I thought it would be instantaneous, but it takes a while for his writhing to cease. From the hook to my right, I grab the length of rope and tie it tightly around his wrists. To my left, a strip of black masking tape is already cut, hanging loosely from the side of the van. I grab it and place it across his mouth. Steps that are likely unnecessary, but I'm not taking any risks. The coolness of the breeze rushes across my face as I remove the mask and search his pockets, finding a phone with a cracked screen. It's done. Closing the doors, I take a final look around. Clear. I get back into the van, reach down for the pen, and scribble some notes across the passenger seat pad. I turn the engine over, flick the stereo on low, and pull away. Traffic in the main street is flowing well. The plan couldn't be going any better. I run through the abduction multiple times, trying to pick up something I might have missed. I'm already constructing new sentences in my head, but they still feel as though they lack in some way. I need to dig deeper, get into his psyche, lift each layer of fear. Lighter and sweeter air soon begins to seep through the half-open car window bringing me out of autopilot like a dose of smelling salts. Lush farmland on both sides marks my departure from suburbia to country. The narrower roads and sharper turns demand my concentration as the light begins to fade. I turn the stereo off, letting myself enjoy the peacefulness. I used to love this part of the journey, but it's been tarnished as late by bouts of anxiety and frustration at the inevitable lack of productivity on arrival. The canopy above begins to thicken, and the road narrows further into the final stretch. There's a quiet innocence here that weighs heavy on me today, but does not extinguish the excitement and the prospect of breaking through. It's the first time I've felt, well, something for so long. The cabin is hidden behind a row of trees ahead. Beck and I fell in love with it after renting the place for a long weekend umpteen summers ago. It was hours within weeks for an exorbitant price. We used to spend many weekends here until the writing took over. When I got the little extra wall put in for the study, she stopped coming. She said she still loves me, but that she's lonely. We have a child on the way now. Just one more book and I'll quit. I roll up the makeshift gravel driveway and let my head come to rest on the steering wheel. Taking deep breaths of earthy fragrance, I guess I have about thirty minutes before the child starts to come around. Reading through my scribbled notes fills me with a renewed urgency and I slip the pad and pen into my pocket and head inside. The woody smell of the cabin taunts me. Endless days spent pacing up and down, trying to add life to my second novel. On the table in the corner, empty liquor bottles sit next to the laptop, further reminding me of my failures. I carry the boy through to the study and drape him across the small sofa, removing the sack and tape from across his mouth. There's a glimmer of sympathy, but I can't be clouded. I need to document everything if I'm ever going to make pages come alive again. All of my fear, all of my pain, was poured into my first novel, and it left me exhausted, depleted of all emotions, incapable of writing anything else with weight or substance. It was like therapy that worked a little too well, removing the dark cloud that hung around like a tumor, leaving me with a best-selling novel and nothing else to say and nothing else to feel. That was five years ago and the soporific cloud has followed me ever since. Poor kid will have no idea where he is or why he's been taken. Is that worse than knowing your fate? At least you can prepare yourself mentally if your future is already decided. But not knowing? Will he try and escape? Will he call for help? Will he cry? Perhaps in the first instance he might think it's all just a bad dream? I shut the door and lock it behind me, eager to go on this journey with him. I boot up the laptop and initiate the software for the camera. Everything is set. The experiment is ready. It's 5.20pm and the light outside is fading quickly. His mother will be on her way home from work. I hope I gave him the right amount. I slip my hand in my pocket and bring out the notepad and pen. I need a whiskey. Only one though. A treat for a successful abduction, if you like. As I relax back into the couch with my heavy glass, I stare at the screen, hoping that all of this will be worth it. It has to be. Over twenty minutes pass before the kid's first natural movement. I wonder if he'll call out for his mum first. He puts a hand to his head and takes his first proper look around. His gaze stops at the camera. Now he knows. His head begins snapping in different directions, eyes widening once again, mouth partially open. He must be eleven, twelve at a push. Night terrors may be a thing of the past, but he's still at an age where fear can easily be implanted. Noises in the dark, a scary movie, a sinister mask. Smells will be different, alien, disorienting. Another pang of guilt strikes as I observe his confusion. But this is five years of desperation, and I need to push through. He climbs on the bed, peers through a gap in the boards, and screams into the fading light. My pencil almost punctures the paper as I continue to document every little move and whimper. It's been a long time since words have found their way so easily and quickly, and a shudder of excitement works its way down my spine. All this time, I've resigned myself to being the one that wrote that book, but now I feel another is within reach. Living through this kid will give me what I need to inject real fear and wonder into the manuscript that has been sat untouched for too long. His screams are relentless, and only when his voice finally gives up, the tears begin. They took much longer than I thought. He sits down on the bed, Puts his head in his hands and begins to mumble something. Then there's a sudden sharp intake of breath and his eyes widen again. He thrusts his hand into his back pocket and now the front, no doubt searching for his phone. Disappointment leads to more frantic sobbing. He begins to gently rock back and forth, the weeping intensifying and heading into full-blown hysteria. His left leg is tapping wildly and it seems to be getting faster the more worked up he gets. I can make out a string of saliva hanging from his mouth. This is raw fear, raw panic. His body is losing control. Keep with the program, Sam. He'll be home in the morning.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
4: Holding the laptop, I tiptoe across to the door and give it a firm rap. His head immediately snaps up and there's another intake of breath. I observe the puffiness in his face, tears still racing down both cheeks and eyes as wide as the first time the realization washed over him. He appears to be holding his breath, as if suddenly frightened to make a sound, his face becoming redder by the second. "'Kid,' I say. He's trying so hard, but the convulsive whimpering gets the better of him again. I give him a few seconds. "'Kid!' His legs are still tapping and he's shaking gently. The crescendo of fear seems to be passing, the crying phase is winding up. Is it the human voice? The ignorance and innocence of associating a fellow human with anything but compassion and empathy. How small his circle must be. Quit sniveling, I snap. I... I'm trying, he replies, sniffing back the snort that was beginning to well in his nose. You have two minutes to stop, or I'll come in there and give you something to cry about. Do you understand? Yes, he croaks. I observe the kid as he tries to get himself together. He stands and wipes his face with the back of his wrist and sniffs loudly three times. He begins to tap himself on the right thigh, perhaps a mechanism he uses for self-soothing. Rushing back to the couch, I pick up the pen and scrawl down more notes. He's pacing up and down now looking around the room. Is he searching for a way out? Something he could stash away as a weapon, perhaps? The room is stripped bare aside from the blankets on the side of the sofa. "'What are you thinking, kid?' I ask. Silence. I walk back to the door and give a gentle tap this time. "'What's going on inside your head?' He sniffs loudly and wipes his hand across his nose. I'm scared and confused. I don't know where I am, and I don't know who you are. Is there something you want to ask me, kid? He stops pacing, gives a violent shiver, and screws his eyes up. No. There is. I can tell. Don't lie to me, or I'll have to come in there. He turns towards the door, opens his mouth, and closes it again, pinching some skin under his armpit. I make more notes. Who are you? The kid finally rasps. Come on, kid. Ask me the question that is really on your mind. The one that is bouncing around your head like a rubber grenade. Sucking in some air, he takes a step back. Are. are you going to kill me? He screws his eyes shut even more tightly as if the act will somehow ensure a more favorable response. Intentionally, I leave a long pause. I note every tremble that he makes, the changing hue of his skin and the variation in his breathing, both frequency and length. Eventually, he opens his eyes, but his face is taut with anxiety and anticipation. This is first-class stuff. Who is your best friend, kid? He crinkles his forehead and shakes his head slightly. What? Your best friend? Who is it? Which one would miss you if you never saw them again? He wipes back more tears and swallows hard. I... I... don't have any friends. What about school friends? I have school issues. Move around a lot, you know? I let out a sigh. You're going to have to make one up then. And I'm going to need you to sound convincing. Got it? The screen shows him nodding. You're going to call your mum and tell her you were at a friend's house. She's not my mum. She's my foster carer. There's a pause as the kid looks down to the ground. My parents are dead. And the others didn't want me. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Of all the kids, you went and picked a fucking lonely orphan. Kudos, Sam stick with it for christ's sake there's too much at stake what's her name jessica you're going to call jessica and tell her you're at a friend's house that you're staying over there will be no whiny voice no stuttering or sniffing if you even look like you will cry i will inflict more pain than you ever thought possible do you understand i hear him take a deep breath but there is no reply the screen shows him opening and closing his mouth as he tries to speak. What's your name, kid? Tommy. I'll ask this one more time, Tommy. Do you understand what I'm requesting you to do? Yes, he finally manages to spit out. What what if she says no? Well, that will be a problem, Tommy. I scroll through the handful of contacts in his phone until I find the entry named Jess, and tap the call button. As it begins to ring, I slide it under the door. Anything but what I said, and this will not end well, Tommy. He picks up the phone and looks at the screen. Frantically, he begins strumming the left thigh with his free hand as he holds the trembling telephone to his ear. What if... Oh! Hi, Jess! Yeah. I'm... I'm fine. Good. Okay. Yeah. I'm out of friends. He pauses to look at the camera. Jakes. Yeah. I was hoping I could stay the night. Yeah. I went home first to get a change of clothes. Yeah. No, his mom said she'd drop me back. Okay. You too. Bye. Good, now slide it back. The kid did well, a little shaky at times, but it's a pass. I exchange the phone for a bar of chocolate, which he quickly grabs and moves back to the bed. He places it on top of the blanket, beginning to kick his legs alternately back and forth. I can tell that he wants to ask what is going to happen next, but he either hasn't got the nerve or is too afraid of the answer. He continues to kick, but now his legs are crossed together. I write it all down. Perhaps such entanglement is comforting. Another trusted calming mechanism. The experiment has already been so rewarding. I probably have enough to make my character tug at even the coldest of hearts. Just a little more. There's only a little light left outside now, so I strike another match and light the kerosene lamp. It fills the cabin with a warm glow. Tommy notices too, and crouches to the floor, placing the sign of his head against the warped boards. I tiptoe across to the mantelpiece, grab the mask and slide it on. Edging carefully against the cabin wall, I drop to my knees and rest my head against the floor. Our eyes meet. It's an explosive moment, as though a fog lifts and the seriousness of what I'm doing churns my stomach. Tommy gives a sudden and sharp intake of breath and disappears, feet scampering towards the relative safety of the sofa. I can hear his breathing, loud and irregular, and I have no doubt his heart rate is just the same. Adrenaline is fading, quickly being replaced with the knowledge that this will stay with Tommy, the orphan boy. Long after I've dropped him back in town. It's too late to stop, though. One last push. What are you feeling, Tommy? I want to go home. Why? Because I'm scared. You'll never live this down, Sam. What does it feel like, Tommy? What? Your fear. Describe it to me. I feel sick. Is that why you're not eating the chocolate bar? Yes. I can feel myself caving. It's too much. So close, though. What can you smell? What can you taste? Metal. I like metal in my mouth. And smoke. I could smell it and taste it. Salt too. Jessica said there's salt in tears, but not like the stuff you can put on your chips. Mostly metal, though. He croaks. What else? Tell me everything. Convince me that you fear for your life, and I may let you live. My voice already feels weaker. Blood. Pumping in my ears. And there's a ringing sound. I'm shaking. So cold. And... My mouth is dry. I need the toilet. My legs feel weird. I'm pathetic. All this for ego. What about in your head? Not the physical stuff. Your thoughts. What are your thoughts? I'm worried you might be one of those strange men that likes little kids. I'm scared you're going to kill me. Normally, kidnappers ask for money, but I I don't know what you want. What do you want? He spits, the words rolling into each other. I'm not a pervert. What else? Are you going to let me go? He asks. I've been blinded by desperation and a selfish desire for fame. You have to answer my questions, Tommy. I croak. I have answered your questions, mister. Please. Just a heartbroken kid. Tommy. I just want to feel safe. And that's it. The trigger that prompts me to scream and throw my laptop against the wall. all oh, for the sake of ego. What the fuck have I done? How did I let myself think this would be okay? What? What was that? What's going on? Tommy's voice cries. All this preparation. All the weeks of planning. Did I ever really consider the long-term repercussions? The obsession possessed me. All for a few words that people will forget shortly after reading. We're leaving, I say. We drive in silence as the blackness of night swallows the headlights. Not one word has been spoken since I informed him of his early departure. Perhaps he thinks I'm going to stop near these woods. Fidgeting nervously, tapping his hand against his thigh and crossing and uncrossing his legs... He's pretending to look out the window, but I've already caught him on at least two occasions analyzing my reflection. Where are we going? he asks softly. Has the mass now lost its menace? I keep my eyes on the road and reach for the kid's mobile phone in my jacket pocket, causing the notepad to fall to the floor. Here's your phone. He grabs it, but I don't let go. Tommy, I'm making you a promise that if you mention a word of this to anyone... I will bring you and Jessica back to the woods, and make you dig each other's graves. Do you understand?" He nods. You really should be wearing a seatbelt. Fuck, kid. It's broken, I say releasing the phone. He turns his attention to the cross that hangs in the rearview mirror and follows its gentle swing with his eyes. Thanks, he mutters. For what? not killing me. The night isn't over yet. We drive in silence for a little longer until we see the bright lights of the city. Everything feels a bit like a dream now, as though none of it happened. But I know the events will haunt us both for a very long time to come. I'm going to pull in for some petrol now, and you're going to get out. Don't look back. Just go straight home, okay? Okay. I draw to a halt near the pumps. Go. As Tommy opens the door and steps out, a police car rolls up to the adjacent pump. Instinctively I turn away, ripping the mask from my face, heart pounding and skin crawling with dread. Tommy turns to look at me for instruction, and I nod for him to carry on. I watch as he makes his way to the pavement, nervously glancing over his shoulder at the police car. A car door opens and I turn to see the female officer reaching for the pump. Her male counterpart on the passenger side is looking directly at me. Shit! Quickly I turn away. Did he see me take off the mask? See the kid get out of the car? Is it the plates? I turn my attention back towards Tommy as he approaches the pedestrian crossing. Stay calm, Sam. Just as I turn the engine on, I hear another door open, and from the peripheral vision... I see the officer stepping out of the vehicle. Hey, he calls. A haze shrouds me, and my foot instinctively slams against the pedal, the sound of burning rubber exploding around us. From the canopy's protection, the car skids onto the glistening wet tarmac and immediately begins to fishtail. I'm heading straight for the kid. He turns and freezes, eyes wide. Knuckles are white as I wrestle with the steering wheel, but it's no good. There's no traction on the road. Our eyes meet as I continue to veer towards him, his now glowing bright red. He smiles, lifts a hand, and begins to mount something, and suddenly I'm spinning off towards the edge of the road in slow motion towards the barrier, the squeal of tires becoming a drawn-out orchestra of smashing glass and twisted metal. I feel something begin to surge inside me. My lungs feel like they're caving in, and I can't feel my legs. Something is wrong with my head, too afraid to move it. I'm not even sure I could lift it from the hood. The taste of blood fills my mouth, thick and coppery, metallic, or perhaps the smell of fear, like Tommy described. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Tommy. He walks towards me, still carrying that smile, but he shouldn't be walking. I was heading straight for him. I remember. He... He lifted a hand and his eyes. You... you did this, I rasp. Tell me, is the blood pumping? Are your ears ringing? Are you cold? Only the cold. Nothing but the cold. Stop sniveling, he says, eyes glowing red. I don't understand. Didn't you ever wonder why I took the long road home every night? As the sirens approach, I can't take my stare away from those eyes. I could smell you everywhere. Who's been tracking who? What are you talking about? I wish there was some pain, but there's nothing. That's the worst part. All I feel is the ice cold grip of fear. More voices. Close, but distant at the same time, and bright lights begin to blur in a single color. Fuck. I'm scared. No. It's more than that. You couldn't simulate this. You can threaten, pretend, but there'll be a reprieve for me. I'm broken. This is it. He steps forward, reaching through the broken windscreen to grab the cross. He snaps it off the chain and holds it towards the sky, chanting the same incoherent nonsense as before. The cross fizzes in his hand and turns into black ash that carries away on the slight breeze. What are you feeling? What are your thoughts? I try and speak, but only a garbled rasp emerges. Around me, the voices are getting more urgent. In the distance, I can see back. She's smiling and stroking her bump. Olivia, that's what we're calling her, our little girl. They both crumble into black ash and float away on the gust. The notepad on the floor, that's what this has all been about. Who, who are, it has an energy, doesn't it, fear. But I'll never get to find out what's going on inside their heads. You finally know now, though. What's it like? It's getting harder to breathe. I think I'll stop trying soon. So goddamn cold. Was I everything you hoped for? Plenty of material? Shame you'll not get to use it. As he steps in closer, Blackness begins to fill the outside of my vision. He leans over, bringing his face only an inch from mine. Got a real story for you, mister. He offers a smile. I slit Janet and Trevor's throats and ate ice cream while watching them bleed. I even sliced open my arm to make it look as though someone broke in. And then there was Denise, who had a fall while putting up Christmas decorations. A sudden gust of wind shook the ladder. It took a long time for her to die. Even had time to make a cheese sandwich during that show. I'm fading fast. My heart slowing to a dampened thud. Was I convincing? I think I'm getting better all the time. Practice makes perfect and all that. More car door slammed shut. Police stand back. Jess is kind of sweet, but I crave it, you see. His eyes burn red as he continues to study my fear. I can smell it, taste it. It'll never be enough. He drops his gaze to the floor. You got blood on my new shoes. Voices slow to a drawl. Kid, you okay? He begins to sob, eyes as
3: blue as they come. I hope you enjoyed Case Study as written by Mark Toes and performed by Nick Goroff. To find out more about Mark Toes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Toes, spelled T-O-W-S-E, and you'll be redirected to his author's profile on our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com where you'll find ways to connect with him and follow him for his latest updates, as well as a link to his work on Amazon.com. By clicking his Amazon link on that profile, a small portion of your purchase goes to us here at Chilling Tales, where we're proud Amazon affiliates, to help make this show possible. And if you decide to check out Mark's work on Amazon, you won't want to miss his fantastic new novel, Nana. In our featured author's latest magnum opus, you'll meet Ollie and his Nana, a woman by the name of Ivy. And unfortunately for Ollie, it takes more than Dean Dentures, Brandy and Bingo to keep her happy. Nana Ivy lives in New Haven Crescent, where most of the other residents are past their expiry date and all kinds of crazy. It's the kind of place where you hang your sanity up at the door Being the matriarchal type, Ivy cares for the other residents as though they were kin. So, of course, it's of enormous concern when their veins begin to blacken and they start shedding their skin. Not to mention the glistening things crawling out of their hair. They're pushing their luck and Ivy knows it. Oh, and did I mention she has a dark secret? Young Ollie doesn't know what to make of it when he comes to visit, but he's about to find out that there's more to his nana than cough drops and slippers. Oh yes, he's in for a long night. So don't delay. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com toes, spelled T-O-W-S-E, and pick up your copy of Nana and let Mark know that Otis and the team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights sent you. It would mean a lot to us. Thanks again for your support of tonight's talented authors and of indie horror. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. If you drop by, don't forget to let him know you heard him here on this show. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Kyle Harrison and performed by Danielle Hewitt. In it, we'll be introduced to a pair of newlyweds desperately trying to overcome a language and cultural barrier, among other things. But how negative does a relationship have to be before turning utterly toxic? And what happens when a helpful hand comes from a rather unexpected place? Now, without further ado, I present to you... Toulette.
1: I should have taken more notice of the graffiti when I arrived at the Highbrooks. But the sad fact is that the strange scribblings on the complex were the least of my worries here. Traveling alone is never something I would recommend when you're in the area you're unfamiliar with. But my options were limited. If my fiancé Peter were here, he could have translated the words. But he had still not gotten his green card when I bought the property in South Sussex. That was just another item to add to the list of mistakes I made with him. The building stood approximately 33 meters away from the rest of the cul-de-sac, a relic of a bygone era. To be honest, when I first got the keys to go tidy up the apartments, I actually wondered if the place had been condemned at some point. That's the problem with me, though. I always dreamed too big. Where I saw potential, others could look and see nothing but headaches and more debt. Nothing about the place had been updated in well over 10 years, thanks to the downturn in the local economy. Dust and cobwebs covered every surface and boards nailed down each window. It felt more like a tomb, and I was a grave robber intruding. This was supposed to be an investment in our future. But instead, the purchase was feeling more and more like a train wreck. As I moved toward the second floor to inspect the wiring and floorboards, things did not improve much. I used my phone's flashlight to illuminate my steps, shining it down the dirty hallway like a beacon. Clearly, no one has been here for years, I thought, as I saw something in the distance, something stir, and I remembered the seller's warning of rats. Cautiously, I approached, trying to see where the vermin scurried off to. When I rounded the corner, though, I found myself face to face with something far more significant than any rodent. At first, I didn't know quite what it was, except that it had to be about the size of a grown ape. It was hunched over the way such a primate would do to protect itself. And from this angle, all I saw was long matted hair. That coupled with the foul odor, made me initially think it actually was such a great beast, escaped from the zoo. When the light hit its features, it stirred, and I recoiled in fear, frantically grabbing my keys to search for my mace. While doing that, I dropped my keys in a panic, and I heard the thing make this low grunting noise, like it hurt to even move. As I reached down to retrieve my phone, I caught a glimpse of its face and found myself in utter amazement. This was not an animal at all, but a frail, homeless old man. My weak light showed that his aged features had all the signs of starvation, along with bruising. He likely had been hiding in this abandoned building for a while, using it to hide from the cold and rain that was common this time of year. I could see that he just barely had any sight at all. His eyes glistened curiously toward me as he tried to determine if I was a friend or a foe. How long had it been since he bathed or had a proper meal? My heart went out to him, thinking of the hard childhood I had growing up in the States. His naked body was covered in tattoos and scars, his muscles frail and his skin sagging everywhere else that his beard did not protect. Everything about him screamed an addict, a victim of this criminal society that had been seeping into Europe for well over my entire lifetime. I'm not going to hurt you, I told him realizing that he was likely more frightened of me than I was of him. He tilted his head, clearly understanding the words but did not respond. Could he even speak? Or had he been so far removed from his fellow human beings that he no longer felt it necessary? My name is Bernice. Bernice, I said, placing my hand on my chest then gesturing toward him. What is your name? He opened his mouth, trying to clear his throat, And then in a low, guttural tone, he said with a thick Slavic accent, Dom. I'm going to help you, Dom. I told him as I slid open my phone and called Peter. I knew he was probably still on his flight from Copenhagen, but I figured maybe he could still help. Hello. He asked as I put him on speakerphone. Peter, Abe, I'm here at the apartments. We have a neighbor. Can you help me tell him that I'm going to contact the homeless shelter? I asked softly.
5: What? What are you talking about? Is it a squatter?
1: He asked with his thick accent. He's just a harmless old man. He looks lost, babe. I told him.
5: You wasted my time for this? Call the police and get him out of there.
1: He snapped and ended the call. I sighed and figured he was probably irritated from his long flight. We had worked so hard to get him into the country. And this whole thing of trying to renovate the Highbrooks was an idea that he had never been on board with. I kept telling myself that I knew he would calm down once he got his green card. Once he saw all the things that London could give him. Sorry about that, Dom. I'm going to go try and find some help, okay? I told the frail older man. All he did this time was nod. I moved back down to the first floor, trying to use what limited internet I had to find the nearest shelter. It was about 13 blocks away. Not bad. Pushing the door open, I went back to my SUV and decided that I would stop by and ask them to help Dom on my way to the airport. I was confident that the good deed would make up for some of the other cosmic, lousy luck I had been receiving lately. How little I knew. Peter landed around 6 that evening. After a bit of delay, waiting for him to get into the dock, he looked grumpy but smiled when he saw me. I brought him his favorite food and a sign in Russian that said, Welcome home.
5: You misspell home,
1: he whispered to me as he kissed my forehead. I blushed and remarked, I'm just glad to see you made it.
5: Have you got a hotel for us?
1: He asked as we walked to the baggage claim. I bit my nails, nervous to tell him the bad news. The fact of the matter was, I was dead broke. The current expenses with the title for the property had set me back about 40000 Actually, babe, we're gonna have to stay with my folks tonight. It's just for tonight, maybe tomorrow, I hesitantly told him. His eyes flashed frustration, but he didn't say a thing. Peter has always had a short temper, and I knew the idea of having to stay with family was going to upset him since my folks are devout Christians. The chances of getting any alone time were relatively next to nothing. But thankfully, he was too tired from his flight to make an argument, and just huffed in disappointment, grabbed his bags, and marched toward the front of the airport. I slinked behind, wanting so badly to ask him about his trip and a dozen other questions, but my common sense told me he was not in the mood. Instead, for most of the drive across London to my parents' flat. I didn't make any comment, except when he did, being careful to gauge my responses so that I wouldn't upset him more. I wanted everything to be perfect for the start of our life together, but I've never been one to make waves. Besides, my father was convinced that Peter was terrible news, and I had been having a hard enough time trying to convince him otherwise. It's my fault, really. As I said, my parents are traditional Christian of the Lutheran faith and don't think I should have even started a relationship outside of my home so hastily. What they don't understand was that despite Peter's flaws, he was a sweet man. I mean, we all have problems, right? Just because he came from communism didn't mean that he was a terrorist or something. Convincing them of that had been an uphill battle and I doubted this short visit would be any different. It started peacefully. My mom had made us turkey and polis sausage along with lemon cake, which was Peter's favorite. But I could tell from the moment we all sat down at the table, my dad would start putting pressure on my fiance. So, Peter, have you figured out what you're going to do for work yet? Dad, I said in frustration. What? It's a valid question, isn't it? He said and turned to Peter and stated, I just want my daughter to be provided for. That's all. My fiancé wiped his mouth before answering as articulately as possible. English was not his best attribute.
5: I still await confirmation for visa,
1: he answered. That's been a few months back. Since your last visit, my dad pointed out. That's the government for you. Always more hurdles, Mom said. I could tell the questions were bothering Peter, so I tried to steer the conversation a different way. I helped a homeless man today, I offered. My attempt didn't work.
5: I am not, uh, what is the word? Lazy. I want to work, but hands tied. Peter insisted. I understand.
1: I know you love her, I can see that. But. Can I be real with you, Pete? Dad asked. I swallowed, unsure what my father would say. My fiance gestured for him to continue. Bernice is our only daughter. And all of this is so rushed. Getting you here, trying to get things settled for a wedding, and then on top of that, the property she's trying to fix. Feels like something out of reality TV, he said. My fiance didn't know some of those words. So I softly translated them. This time it seemed like he was angry with me.
5: Why you tell father about the property? That's our decision.
1: He muttered. Babe, they helped us get the loan. We're investing for the long term, I told him. It was stupid. Peter barked. Hey now, no need for name calling, Mom said. No, Mom, it's fine. Peter just means that he doesn't know why I couldn't get the money myself. I said as I squeezed his hand. I told you, my credit was bad babe, I said. And this is exactly what I'm talking about, putting the cart before the horse, Dad said. I glared at him, upset that he was provoking a reaction. The only saving grace was my phone buzzing, and I saw it was the shelter calling me back. Bernie, you know the rules. No cell phones at the table, Mom chided. Sorry, I need to take this. I responded getting up and moving to the hallway. Hello, Bernice Manchester speaking. I said softly. Yes, evening, Mom. This is the St. Alphys Homeless Shelter. You called earlier about a man needing assistance in the Highbrooks? The answer came. I paced toward the window as I refrained from hearing my dad lecture Peter some more. It was making my blood pressure rise. Yes, yes, that's right. Did you get him to help? I asked. Well, that's the thing, Mom. We checked the entire property top to bottom, as best we could. I couldn't find him anywhere. Could you give me a description? The employee asked. I pursed my lips, realizing that the old man had likely decided to leave after our encounter. Some people just don't recognize they need help, I thought to myself. No, I'm sorry. I probably made a mistake. I'm sorry to waste your time. I told them as I heard Peter shout something in Russian and my front door slam. I ended the phone call there and went into the kitchen to see what happened. What did you say? I asked my father angrily. Nothing that didn't need to be said, he said. Dad, seriously, why can't you be happy for me? Every time Peter has traveled, it always feels like an interrogation. I muttered. Your father just wants what is best for you. Mom insisted. I sighed in frustration. (sighs) What I need right now is for you to let me live my own life. Make my own mistakes. Oh, you're going to be making plenty of those with Putin out there. Dad muttered. Dear. Mom snapped. I sighed. (sighs) It's fine. I should have known coming home was a mistake too. I grabbed my coat and Mom tried to stop me. Where are you going? I've got a credit card. Peter and I can grab a hotel. Anywhere more hospitable than here, I answered. I'm sorry about your father. He means well. She whispered as she led me out to where Peter was getting a smoke. Tell him he can stop worrying. I'm a big girl. I can take care of myself. I told her as she hugged my neck and also apologized to Peter. We left right around 9. I'm sorry about my dad, I said once we were finally settled in at the hotel. All I wanted to do was just cuddle in my fiancé's arms and forget about it. But Peter was still brooding.
5: Father, a very stubborn man.
1: Oh, and you aren't? I teased, punching his arm. Peter was not in the mood, though, and muttered,
5: Why does he not like me?
1: No, it's not that at all, babe. I said as I wrapped my arms around him and snuggled. He just doesn't want me having another heartbreak, I explained. He nodded and we laid there for a moment in silence as I played with his beard. Hey, what exactly did you say to him tonight anyway? I asked. Hmm? Huh?
5: Oh, told him he could svet tibirvat,
1: Peter remarked. What does that mean? I giggled.
5: Too crap in his mouth.
1: He said with a smug smile. I sat up, looking at him like a scolding mother. Peter, that's my father. Don't talk to him like that, I told him.
5: What? I do not see the issue. He was rude to me.
1: He retorted. He wasn't rude. He was just concerned for my safety. I argued.
5: And why be concerned? Why is the reason for concern? Tell me concern.
1: Peter insisted. I stood up. Flustered that he didn't see anything wrong with his derogatory remarks. You need to apologize to him. He was looking out for us. He's done a lot for us, you know. I told my fiancé. Peter snuffed his nose in the air and remarked.
5: He helps you. He no helps me. I don't see the reason for an apology.
1: He argued. Don't be like that. We want to get along with them, don't we? I mean... They are the only family I have, I told him.
5: Not my family.
1: Peter snapped back. I did my best not to blow up. I knew that it wouldn't get any better if I kept pressing the issue. So I grabbed my pillow and said icily, I'm sleeping in the other room.
5: Fine, whatever.
1: Peter said, acting like he didn't care. I was just too exhausted for any of this. Grabbing a warm blanket from the dryer, I snuggled on the couch inside, wiping away a few tears. Why was this so much harder than I ever really dreamed? Eventually, that same tiredness overwhelmed my body into sleep. Both of us slept in and missed breakfast the following day. But our day was so full of things to do for the Highbrooks, that I figured busting our tails off over there would let us forget about the arguments from the night before. When we arrived, Peter seemed to be in good spirits especially when he saw that the building appeared to have a particular architectural design, similar to what he was used to from Moscow.
5: Not all houses are homes,
1: he said as we approached the complex. I noticed him looking at the Russian graffiti and I remarked, I forgot to tell you about that. I wondered what it
5: meant. It is, what is the word? Old wives' tale. Yes, something associated with the Domovoy in the old country.
1: He explained as we walked inside. I squeezed his arm and remarked, Sounds scary. Tell me more about this domovoi. But Peter was otherwise distracted. I knew what he thought as his eyes roamed the dusty banisters and the broken tiles. It needs a little TLC. I said as he covered his mouth and brushed a ton of old ash from the front desk.
5: This is worse than pigsty. Why did you ever get this property? He muttered.
1: It's not that bad. Besides, we can make it better. I remarked with a smile as we walked up the stairs. I didn't want him giving up when we hadn't even gotten started at all. But I could tell with each corner we turned, in the room we explored, he was growing more and more apprehensive.
5: Do AC work at least?
1: He asked. No, sorry sweetie, hasn't been installed yet. I admitted. I was getting the impression that he was not liking this arrangement one bit. I'm sure once we get started, we won't notice. I can open some windows. I said as we started back to the door to go and grab some tools from his truck. Peter mumbled something under his breath, but I ignored it. I could see why the place would make him in a bad mood. He probably thought that I'm a sucker for even purchasing it, I realized. But soon enough, I was sure he would see its true potential. A few days passed. Peter started working on fixing holes in the wall, upholstering furniture that could be saved in electrical. I focused on the basements. There was a lot of flooding down there, and old equipment that needed to move. So we hardly got to see each other a lot of the times. When we were together, things didn't turn out so well. I could see that the lack of air, running water, and other proper utilities was agitating him. Casual conversations would turn into arguments quickly. Can you help me move some stuff onto the fourth floor? Toss it out the window? I asked one time, squeezing his muscles. His glare told me that he wasn't in the mood.
5: I need to take a smoke,
1: he said as he wiped away more sweat. We can't keep having breaks or we'll never get anything done, I told him. He whipped around a point of finger in my face.
5: You think I am lazy? Or did you bring me here to make me your slave?
1: He growled. What? What are you talking about? I'm pitching in too, I told him.
5: You hardly do any heavy lifting.
1: Peter snapped back. I could tell his temper was rising. Babe, you know I can't. I teased him, placing my hands on his chest. He pushed me away a little roughly. Don't
5: treat me like a child.
1: Well, you are acting like one, I remarked. This time, I was the one about to leave, not wanting this to get any more heated. But he grabbed my wrist and twisted me back toward him, shouting in my face. Don't
5: act like a bitch.
1: Get your hands off me, I said back wiggling from his grasp and rubbing my arm gently. That hurt, I muttered, and then said, just leave me alone. He mumbled an apology as I stormed back to the basement, frustrated that I had let things escalate so quickly. I slumped down near the bottom of the stairs and held my face in my hands, trying not to be overwhelmed with emotion. Then, from amid the shadows, I heard this strange low grunt. It made me stiffen. And I looked toward the old laundry units that were pushed against the cement walls. From in between two of the washers, a pair of glossy eyes looked in the shadows. Who's there? I asked cautiously. The shape moved toward me and into the light, revealing it to be the homeless man that I had thought run off. He looked like he was in worse shape than before, his skin shriveling and rotting, his teeth hardly hanging in, and he looked like he was sizing me up for his next meal. What are you doing here? What do you want with me? I asked as I stood up. The man growled like a feral animal. I knew he didn't understand what I was saying, but still, I tried to reason with him. I can help you. Let me help you. I told him, trying to reach out toward his shoulder. He gnashed his teeth and lunged toward me, scratching my arm with his twisted nails. Then, he came at me with even more ferocity as I screamed. Suddenly, I felt a firm grip on my other hand pulling me back up the steps. Peter guarded me and swung a hammer toward the old man, causing the stranger to growl in frustration and slink away toward the shadows. Don't hurt him, he's just confused, I said.
5: Are you crazy? He tried to attack you.
1: Peter insisted as he moved toward the old man. Let's just call the police, please, I said holding him back. The old man squatted down back into his hiding place, the way a snake would return to its hole and Peter stalled, then nodded toward my suggestion.
5: Fine, but I want him gone,
1: he muttered as we walked up the stairs together. I could still hear the old naked man growl as we did. Unsurprisingly, when the police arrived, somehow, the homeless man had already managed to find a different hiding place. I don't see how that's possible. There's no other way out of the basement, I told them as they came up the stairs. He's probably been here a lot longer than we think. Knows all the in and outs. One officer suggested as he looked toward the bruise on my arm. The squad would do that too? I quickly covered it up and shrugged, feeling my face turn beet red. It's nothing. I got a few scrapes working upstairs. I told them. The officer nodded, glancing over toward Peter who was making a statement to his partner. And then he reached into his pocket and took out a business card.
5: Well listen. If you feel like you're in any
1: kind of trouble... This is my private line. He said, passing it to me. Thank you. I'll keep that in mind. I said with a nervous smile. Peter and I made up to each other that night on the rooftop. I insisted that we should grab a six-pack and just look out at the stars as the night passed us by. Isn't this country beautiful? I asked wistfully as we saw a shooting star.
5: You are beautiful. I am so sorry for my behavior earlier, Bernice. You are... What is the word? You are in my world.
1: Peter told me. I kissed him. Let's promise not to fight anymore, I said. We made love amid the dark. But our love did not last for much longer. Another week passed and we started to see a change in the highbrooks. Wallpaper was in place, the carpet was down, and the lights were on. It felt like it was alive again but Peter and I's arguments were getting worse. Each time, they ended with neither of us talking to each other for the rest of the day. One time, Peter even threw something at me. I knew he wanted this project to be over with, but these petty fights were getting us nowhere. Finally, I confronted him about it in the kitchen. We need to talk, I said as he got under the sink to fix a leaky pipe. Not now, he remarked. Yes, now, I said as I sighed and remarked. Frankly, I need to know that we're okay, that this is going to stop. He looked up at me, confused and agitated.
5: I am not doing anything wrong.
1: He insisted. We've been at each other's throats for almost a month now. We said we would stop, you promised. I told him as I fought back tears.
5: I am not a liar.
1: He growled. Well, then I'm a fool. Because all you've done is treat me like I'm your property. I said. He slammed down his tools and got in my face.
5: I did not ask to come here and do all this. If I wanted this servitude, I would have stayed in Russia."
1: He snarled. Well, then go back there for all I care, I shouted as I stormed out. I went up to distract myself with cleaning. Another day, we were in the basement again, arguing over the plumbing. Peter slammed me against a wall. You're hurting me, I told him. He apologized immediately. ...and slammed his fist into the wall instead of my face. The act of violence made me frightened. And that night... ...I almost called the police on Peter. I needed to give him another chance, I told myself. This is a lot harder on him... ...coming to a new place and adjusting. I told myself things would get better. Then I found the old man again this time while I was vacuuming one of the penthouses. I was dusting the closets, and when I turned around, he was just... well, there somehow. He was on the carpet, hardly looking as starved as he had before, but still a bit chaotic. He was, however, wearing some clothes that I guess he'd stolen from the laundry. So at least I didn't have to see his naked body again. Dom, I don't want to call the police on you again. Please tell me why you're here. I insisted. He reached toward the carpet and ran his fingers through the fabric before making a grunting noise.
5: My home,
1: he answered. But you can't stay here, I told him.
5: My home,
1: he said this time with a firm voice. It's our home now. I told the old man as I walked past him and added, I don't want to get you in trouble. If you agree to leave peacefully. I'll pretend I didn't see you," I told him.
5: Leave? I am not the one who will be leaving.
1: Dom answered angrily. His tone frightened me, and I quickly locked the door. Suddenly, he was agitated again, and scratching on it like he could get through. I'm sorry, I said as I rushed to find Peter. This needed to end before we opened the doors to the public in a week. I found Peter in the kitchen on the second floor, working on the cabinets. I could see that he still hadn't been cooled down from earlier, so at first, I hesitated about mentioning the return of our unwanted houseguest. He saw my frantic eyes and didn't question why I was there, instead just followed me up the stairs. Once at the locked room, I stood at a distance and watched as my fiancé burst through, only to find an empty suite.
5: Virenese, what is all of this about?
1: He asked in frustration. It was the old man. He was here. I insisted, shocked that he was gone again.
5: I do not have time for games.
1: Peter said, pushing past me. I'm telling the truth. Don't walk away from me. I said, grabbing his hand the same way he had done that first day. He turned around and smacked me in the face, sending me tumbling to the
5: floor. Don't lay your hands on me, woman.
1: Peter shouted back. What the fuck? You son of a bitch! I said, getting up and then shoving him back. His body hit the wall. And this time, I could tell that I'd taken things too far. With a wild look in his eye, Peter came toward me and grabbed my hair, tossing me onto the bed.
5: Sick and tired of your childish tantrums.
1: He snapped as he pinned me down. I struggled as he grabbed and fondled me, making my body feel exposed and uncomfortable. Get off me! I snapped back.
5: Shut your mouth. You want this.
1: He said as he ripped my clothes off, acting like a sexual sadist. No I don't! Stop! I said stop, you bastard! I said, slapping and kicking. His face got hotter with fury, and his hand gripped my neck, making it hard to breathe.
5: You're such a bitch.
1: He shouted. Then, from behind us, we heard a low thrum, a growl emerging from the hall. Peter released his grip on me and I turned to see the old man there, his gaze feral and angry toward the two of us. I gasped for air as Peter went toward the old man and yelled,
5: Mind your business, Koga!"
1: He raised his hand to hit the old man, and I rushed to stop him, causing Peter to slam his fist against me instead.
5: You little bitch,
1: he said as I scratched my nails against his face. Stop it, you monster, I shouted back. Suddenly, the older man struck, acting like a cobra. He grabbed a hold of Peter and pulled him to the floor.
5: What the fuck?
1: My fiancé snarled as he tried to get away from the old man's grasp, but surprisingly, he was stronger than he looked. Then something beyond belief happened. The old man began to sink into the floor, his body slowly melting into the carpet.
5: Bernice, help.
1: Peter said as the stranger grabbed his neck and tightened his hands on his throat. The old man's fingernails transformed into claws, his teeth into fangs, and suddenly I realized he was consuming Peter, taking him into the floor as well. Peter screamed as his legs broke, trying aimlessly to fight the creature with a death grip on him as they sunk into the floor. Then his back snapped, and he shouted obscenities and looked to me for help, desperate for escape. I stood there and watched, paralyzed with fear, but also thankful as a sudden realization came over me. A stranger was helping me, protecting his home. Peter's skin began to slide off, pushing his muscles and bones to different directions as he was now against the carpet himself, the old man's mouth widening until it was large enough to swallow him whole. Peter kept shouting at me, calling me all kinds of names in English and his native tongue until both he and the creature were utterly gone. One vanished, the other devoured. Then the carpet morphed and settled like a rippling lake. I told my parents that Peter had left and returned home. They didn't ask any other questions. The following week, people started moving in. New couples like Peter and me had meant to be. A few even reminded me of our dynamic. And that worried me. I still see Dom sometimes, slinking amid the shadows. But I don't bother him anymore. We understand each other. I bring him a small tray almost daily, a gift to thank him for what he did for me. And sometimes, when I see those young couples that remind me of Peter and me a little too much, I give him something else.
3: I hope you enjoyed to let as written by Kyle Harrison and voiced by Danielle Hewitt. If you enjoyed Miss Hewitt's performance, you can hear more of her on the Chilling Tales YouTube channel, where she was a previous contestant in Evil Idol, just like Nick. You'll also find more of her narrations over at the Creepy Podcast at creepypod.com. If you check her out, be sure to give her a thumbs up and leave a kind word whenever possible and tell her you heard her here on this program. It means a lot to us. To find more of award-winning author Kyle Harrison, visit simplyscarypodcast.com/harrison, spelled H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N, and you'll be redirected to his author profile on creepypastastories.com, where you'll find links to his social media pages, Reddit account, and his publishing company where boundless horrors await. He's also got a number of works available on Amazon, both his own and others he's been included in. His newest short story collection, A Growing Need to Die, is especially good. Check it out. A Growing Need to Die asks the eternal question, Do you believe in ghosts? Well, after reading Kyle's collection, you will. This menagerie of the macabre contains some of Kyle's best stories and is bound to leave you questioning your sanity while you keep the light on reading page after page. If you pick up a copy, leave Kyle a five-star review and a kind word, and let him know you heard about him here, too. Thanks a bunch. Now. Our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and it's been a pleasure as always. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams.
2: Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions.